Hello, and welcome to TNBS, the Thursday Night Bible Study. This study was held on August 26, 2010. Tonight we continue with our study in Romans, looking at verses 18 through 26 of the 8th chapter. So welcome again. This is TNBS, Volume 2, Session 18. Romans, 8th chapter. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And many people believe that the 8th chapter is probably one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And we're going to talk about one of the verses tonight, which many people think is the second greatest verse in the Bible, just behind John 3.16, and that's Romans 8.28. And so far, Paul has been talking about the constant conflict which he has between his sinful desires and his old sinful nature, which he's dead to sin, but yet he still has these sinful desires and how he is struggling with that and trying to live into this new life which he has in Jesus Christ. And he's talked about the fact that we're no longer condemned. There is no longer any condemnation in, because of Christ Jesus. We're no longer held guilty for our sins. Uh, and he goes on and talks about the struggle that he has between the desires of his flesh and the desires of his spirit. And he says our fleshly desires, to, to have a mindset on our fleshly desires to satisfy our flesh will lead us to sin and death. To have a mindset on spiritual things would lead us into having fruits of the Spirit, which we talked about in Galatians 5, of oh, those fruits of the Spirit. So, we ended last week with verse 17, where he says that, well, let's read it, Romans eight seventeen. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Back in the 15th verse Paul of, of this chapter, Paul has talked about the fact that we are, we are sons of God. Because of this new relationship that we have with God because of what Christ has done for us, the penalty which he paid for our sins, he, we've entered into this new relationship, this new position with God, where before we were sinful before God, we're now looked at as being justified, sanctified, righteous, and sons of God. And he says if we're sons of God, then obviously that makes God our Father, our Abba, Father, our Daddy, and we have this new position and this new right to where we can go before him, uh, as it talks about in Hebrews, and go right up to the throne of grace because we have this relationship with him and that we are his sons and we are also heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So we are going to receive the glory which Christ has received because we are joint heirs with him. But, Paul says, if we're joint heirs with Christ and we're going to receive his glory, we also are going to fellowship in his suffering because that was one of the paths to the glory. God did Christ received. And so we pick it up there when he talks about this suffering. And if we're God's children, we're also his heirs and fellow heirs of Christ. But if we join heirs with Christ, we not only inherit his glory, but we also inherit his suffering. And that's where we're going to pick it up tonight. Verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is being revealed for us. Now, this suffering which Paul says we inherit because we are joint heirs with Christ, he says, one of the things which we so often forget in Paul's day and in our day as well is that this is temporary. You know? What we're now living is, is temporary. This is, not, this is not our permanent home. This is not where we're going to spend eternity. What we're going through there is not permanent. Uh, we are no longer citizens of the earth, if you want to look at it that way. Look over in Philippians 3.20, and that's one of the most um, pointed ways that Paul expresses that. Philippians 
Love Philippians. 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with His body of His glory by the exertion of power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Paul says, our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. He said, we are basically temporary aliens in this life. He says, so, when you compare what is awaiting for us when we do enter into the realm of eternal glory with God, this glory which we're going to inherit by being sons of God and being joint heirs with Christ, when you look at that and compare it with our present suffering, our present suffering just ain't that important. It just just really isn't in comparison. Now, Paul makes this same statement in Philippians when he talks about uh, the things that await for him versus what he had. Remember, he says, I've given up everything. And when I take all the things that I have given up, all of the earthly power and the earthly prestige and the earthly positions that I had as a, as a Pharisee and a Hebrew of Hebrews and, and I had the, the honor and glory from man and I, looked, I was looked up to as a leader and I was looked up to as a great religious man. He said, when I compare all of that, take all of that stuff which I have given up, which I have literally just thrown away, so I could gain Christ. He says, and when I compare the two, what is, remember what he calls it? He said, all that stuff in comparison to what I've gained is like a pile of dung. It's like, it's like a, a pasture patty, you know? <laughs> compared to what he's gained in Christ. This is what he's saying here. He says, when you look at our present suffering, that compared with the glory which we're going to receive, it's nothing. It really is nothing. But we do still have to get through this suffering that we have to face on this earth. So he goes on from there, verse 19 through 21. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul says, not only do we have to go through suffering while we are in this present earthly life, he said, but the creation itself is going through the same type of suffering which is something we don't often think about. If you go back and look at uh, Genesis 3.17, I think is the, is, the, is the verse where uh, basically points out the penalty for Adam and Eve's action in the Garden of Eden. And he says that, you know, Adam, you're going to have to go out and you're going to have to toil. And he, and, he, and he curses the earth, the creation. This creation which we live in, this nature which is all around us, this is, it's not what God originally wanted to happen. It's, this is not what he wanted. He did not want all the death and disease and destruction which we see on this earth. That's not what he had planned. He had planned a Garden of Eden, which man gave up so that he could gain so-called knowledge. And in that sin, he lost all of that. And creation itself was punished as well as, as, well as man himself. And so Paul is saying, listen, not only are we looking for our future hope and glory, he said, but the creation is as well. Creation itself is looking for a future and a hope. And it's, it's eagerly awaiting that day when the children of God will receive their glory, for that will be the second coming of Christ. That will be when we all are resurrected into eternal bodies and eternal lives. He said, creation itself is waiting for that, as he expresses in 19, uh, verses 19 to 21. 
When man fell, creation also suffered and is also waiting for the time when God's children will be eternally free from the sin and evil in this present world. Uh, all of creation will also uh, be set free when we are eternally set free, when Christ returns in His glory to reestablish His reign over all creation, then creation itself will be back to what it was originally designed to be, just as we will be restored back into what God originally designed us to be in our relationship with Him, then creation itself will be as well. Reading on, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of a childbirth together until now. now. All of creation groans and suffers awaiting the return of Christ. As a woman in childbirth groans awaiting the delivery of her child. Now, this childbirth illustration is used all throughout Scripture. Uh, basically, it, it's used to d- illustrate a present event that is painful, but one that will ultimately result in joy. Just as childbirth. Childbirth so I'm told, is very painful. <laughs> and I have no reason to doubt it <laughs> from having witnessed it three times in person and also having heard of many other cases. Uh, you know, I have no reason to doubt. Plus, God said when he rushed Eden out of the Garden of Eden, he said, you know, you're going to have pain in childbirth. That was one of the consequences for her sin. And so just as, as a mother will suffer through childbirth and the pain of childbirth for the joy that comes, so this is that same type of illustration. He says the creation is, is groaning in pain for what it's having to suffer through. But like a woman in childbirth, it is looking forward to that glory which is to come, that joy which is to come. Here Paul is using that example to describe how creation is presently suffering, but will eventually be restored to the joy it was originally created for. Now he goes on very quickly in verse 23 and says, Not only creation, but we also are groaning in childbirth, awaiting for our complete adoption as God's sons. Verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. He says, so not only is creation having to go through these birth pangs, or, 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 or being in pain like a woman in childbirth, awaiting the glory to come, he said, but we ourselves, it's the same thing. We are joint heirs, we're joint heirs with his suffering as well. Christ warned us of this in his teachings as well. He said, the world will hate you, even as it hated me. And you are no greater than, the slave is no greater than the master. I think this whole phraseology here, when in verse 19 when he says, well, my, my verse actually says, eagerly awaits for the, rebel, for the revealing of the sons of God. He's talked about the fact that we are sons of God. Okay. And he's going on down, and in verse 23, he says that again, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. But, if you look back at verse 17, uh, verse 15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption by sons which required our Father. So in one case, he says we are sons of God. And in another case, he's kind of indicating like we're going to become sons of God. I think what he's talking about there, Beth, is that we are now sons of God but we are still living in an evil, sinful world. And so we have not fully inherited all that we're going to inherit until latter days when Christ returns, then it will all be revealed. And we will be fully inherit. We will inherit fully what He has prepared for us. What is a resurrected body going to be like? Well... Um, I'm trying to remember because we talked about we, we, he mentions that in previously in this chapter 
uh, verse 11 of the 8th chapter. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead also gives life to your mortal, mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Uh, and we talked about that last week, that in the end, our bodies will be resurrected. What that body looks like, I don't have a clue. I really don't. It's kind of like when we all get to heaven, what age am I going to be? You know, am I going to be the age I died? Or am I going to be in the prime of my life? Which maybe the, the day I die, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. If other places it refers to our, our resurrected bodies of glory, what does that mean? You know, what, is, what does a, a glorified body look like? Uh, we do know there'll be no pain and suffering. There'll be no tears. There'll, there'll be no that. Our bodies will be. What's that? You'll be happy with it, whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's what it is. To be honest, I hope it's the case that I can't even perceive what what it's going to be like. Yeah, it's just you're going to be so. I hope it's much better than anything I could ever dream of. Well, that could you know maybe. Knowing God, it probably will be. To be honest with you, because He has God has always surprised me. I, I think I think it's one of those things that I re, what, is, what are our resurrected bodies going to be like, and what are going to be our rewards when I don't believe we get to heaven? I don't think there's going to be any jealousy, you know. So so if you wind up with with more stars in your crown, if that's what you have, than me, I'm walking around with a crown that's got three, and you walking around with a crown that's got fifteen. Am I going to be jealous? Or is everybody going to look at you and say, man, she's a whole lot better than Keel was. Look at her crown. You know, <laughs> but Paul does teach that our bodies will be, we will have a bodily resurrection, whatever that means. And he does talk about rewards in heaven. Does that mean that you know, some of us are going to live um, in bigger houses, you know, than others? I, I don't know. We won't have wives or husbands. I don't know, Beth. I, I, I kind of agree with Ian, though. I like, I like Ian's thought there that we can sit here and imagine all of the glorious things that we can, but I guarantee you it's probably going to be greater than those, than those thoughts we have. I really do. Whatever we imagine a glorified body to be, whatever we imagine our perfect bodies to be, whatever we imagine our rewards to be, I think it's going to be greater than that. Just because our God is greater than us. You know. So I don't know. It's just something that we can really look forward to. Because we can imagine the greatest thing ever, and it's going to probably fall far short of what God's going to actually do give us, or what it's going to actually be. I think it is anyway. So, okay. Now, Paul has already stated this in verse 23, he talks about waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons. And we've talked about that. Because back in verse, seven, in verse 15, he says, We are spiritually adopted sons. So what's the difference here? I think when he's talking about in this verse 23 is that at, at when we do receive the full glory, that's when we become the full inheritance. We receive the full inheritance, which is ours through Jesus Christ. When we are fully glorified at that point, it's what he's talking about in verse 23. So, okay. So, so we have this to hope and look forward to. We can hope for this, and we can look forward to this. And he goes on in verse 24 and 25. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what does one also hope for when he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now again, still keep all this within context of his, what he's talking about, this suffering that we now have to face here on this earth. Keep this in context. This hope that we have can sustain us presently. Okay, what is this hope he's talking about? Well, he's not talking about the hope we have 
for being justified or for no longer being uh, condemned or for no longer suffering the consequences. That's not a hope. That's a fact. Okay, we don't have to hope that God's going to forgive us. God has forgiven us. We don't have to hope that we are no longer condemned because we're not. We don't have to hope that we'll be justified because we are. These things we don't have to hope for because we have them, and we know those are facts. But it is the hope that we have in our eternal glory yet to come, that which we cannot yet see, that is what we have the hope for. And that is what our faith is placed in. Okay? Going back to Hebrews 11.1. What's the definition of faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay. The assurance of things hoped for. So this is the hope that Paul is talking about here. It's this hope of our future glory. It's this hope of our full inheritance. It's the hope of us becoming fully children of God and sons of God. This is is the hope that he's talking about. And it's this hope, he says, that will help us to persevere. To persevere. That's that hupomone is the Greek word there. Remember the two Greek words that I just love so much. Hupomone and macrothemia. And both of them are translated persevere. The difference is that Macrothemia, which is not used here, means to persevere with difficult people. <laughs> to persevere under persecution from people. Hupomone means to persevere under difficult situations and circumstances. Um, and this is what Paul is talking about here. It, says, it is this hope that we have. Yeah, we're groaning like all creation with the pains of having to go through this suffering that we have to go through here on this earth because we do live in an evil world this this you know that there's evil and sin all around us and we have to suffer the consequences of other people's sins at times and and there is suffering and difficult times uh, as christ warned us but we can persevere under these difficult situations hupomone we can persevere Uh, we can remain under is what the actual greek word means to remain under to bear up to endure the present sufferings that we may have to face now And we can do that because of the hope that we have in the eternal glory of God when we become fully, fully inherited sons of God. That's what he says, but that's what helps him to persevere, to remain under. And not only that, but in those moments when we do feel weakness, in those moments when we do feel defeated, in those moments when we do feel beat down, we have the Holy Spirit. We have God's presence within us. Verse 26, And in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the, He, God, who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I don't know if you've ever been to that point in your life, to where you didn't have answers, but you didn't even know what answer to ask for? You know, you just felt like you were just in this big well with no way out and not even know which, not even knowing which end was up, you know? Just, just not having any sense of, you know, it's not God help me with, and you drill, you didn't really know where to even begin. I don't know if you've ever been that way in your prayer life before. I have been. And it's those times when, when we can just simply rest assured that the Holy Spirit can intercede for us at that point. Even when we don't know what to pray for, even when we're just so totally confused, we don't even have a, we don't know where to begin. That's okay, because the Holy Spirit does. And He is with us. And just as Christ 
is going to intercede for us at the throne of God on Judgment Day so the Holy Spirit can intercede for us now. For He can speak what we don't even know how to put into words. I have been at points in my life to where I, I really didn't even know how to describe what I was feeling. You know? I, I couldn't put it into words. It was just like this heavy cloud or something or just whatever or just total confusion or just total depression or just, you know, just whatever. And I really couldn't even just put it into words, but that was okay because the Holy Spirit could pray for me. And He will pray the Father's will. It's the only thing He can pray. Because He and the Father are one. Yeah. There, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of situations where we don't know, like you said, which way to pray. Which, you know, We want God's will, but what is God's will? Like you were talking about in a situation of someone who's brain dead. Do we, do we pray that they, they'll be healed and restored back to normal? Or that they will regain consciousness, no one realizing that they may be half brain dead? Or do we pray that God will just go ahead and take them on the glory? You know, we, we really don't know what to pray. And that's when the Holy Spirit can step in. That's the same thing when we don't really know what to say to somebody sometimes. Which quite often happens, particularly when you're in situations of grief. When you're dealing with someone who's, who's going through grief. You know, What do you say in a funeral home? When somebody's lost their, their spouse or their or their husband or the wife, or they lost their child, which to me is one of the greatest tragedies. You know, what do you say? What, what, what can you say? Well, you don't know what to say. And that's where the Holy Spirit can step in, I think. Sometimes, I really think sometimes, particularly if, if you're, well, specifically if you're dealing with someone who's a Christian, I think sometimes you don't have to say a word. Because the Holy Spirit within you will reach out to the Holy Spirit, which is, by the way, the same Holy Spirit that's within them. You know, and and as and as you're trying to express your love and concern for them, and the Spirit is expressing that, He's also in them. The Holy Spirit is in them, receiving that love and compassion which you're expressing. You see what I'm saying? Because it's the same Holy Spirit. It's like He's talking to Himself. It's like the Holy Spirit within this person. This person is feeling all this grief and despondency and this type of thing. And the Holy Spirit says, "This person needs someone else." To just, just, just to stand with them, you know, to be with them, to let them know that they're not alone in this. And that's what the Holy Spirit is receiving from that. You, you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, God talked to himself a lot. Jesus did that. You're right. <laughs> he really did. <laughs> and, and to me, like Paul is saying here, in fact, I think, verse 26, he's talked about in verse 24 and 25 how this hope will sustain us and help us to persevere. He says, in the same way, the Holy Spirit will help us and strengthen us and can help us in our weaknesses. Just as our hope and our future glory can, can, can sustain us and help us persevere, so as he says, and in the same way, the Spirit also helps. The Spirit also helps by issuing those prayers which we, we, we don't even know how to verbalize. But then he goes on. We're going to, we're going to get to verse 28, which, like I said, is... is Probably a lot of people think it's the second greatest verse in the Bible. But it can be oftentimes misunderstood and, and can be misapplied. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to be sure I hadn't left anything out of my notes on this on the verses 24, uh, 26 and 27. Uh, Christ witness us for the Father, even as the Holy Spirit is here. Okay. Then we come to verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. First of all, this verse is applying to those that know God, those who call to call to the purpose, those that have entered into the relationship with God, those who are the, 
the justified, redeemed, sanctified sons of God. That's what the verse is applying to. King James does not have the word God in there. Some of the ancient, in fact, that footnote in my Bible says some of the ancient manuscripts just simply says all things work together for good. This verse, because of the importance of what this verse says, it has been greatly discussed and, and argued and you know by all type of theologians forever. A lot of different ways to look at this. One several paragraphs in one book I read and all it talked about was what is the subject? Is it all things work? Is it God works? Or is it the Holy Spirit works? You know, uh, I went back and looked at the original Greek. You know, I have one of those Greek inliner Bibles that has the actual Greek wording. This sentence is screwy. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. In the original language, it is really screwy. It does have God in, in the translation I read. It does have God in there twice, but they're only like two words apart. And, and the, the wording and, the, and the, the way the Greek is worded here, it can be really confusing to read it. Sometimes going back to the original and reading it, you know, Greek word for Greek word, it still makes pretty good sense. Here, this is just all screwed up. In fact, in the, in the Bible that I have, it, it, it numbers the words sometimes so that you can read it in English order. And this one is just, it, it, it's confusing. But God causes all things to work together for good. All things work together for good. Either way. Either way, God causes it. God is behind it. That's the whole point. God is behind it, regardless. Either way. All things to work together. NIV says God works all things. He doesn't use the word together. Now, a couple of ways that this verse has been applied to people in situations. Uh, some people have gotten really hung up on this together with, have worked together with, or with together. It almost sounds like that there are things that work and then that, that and they work with God, you know, outside of the things. All things work together with God, you know. You see the see, see the way that phrase can be looked at. It's like all these bad things happen, but yet you got God over here who can work with all those bad things to make good out of it. Yeah, maybe. I'm really not going to get hung up on the with so much as the application of that word good. I've heard a lot of people use this verse in such situations. For example. A guy has a great job and loses his job. And somebody with all good intentions comes up to him and says, Don't worry. You lost a great job. That's okay. God's got one better for you. Because God works all things together for good. Or the girl who is engaged to be married. And all of a sudden the fiancé breaks off the engagement. And somebody says, Oh, don't worry about it. Don't be upset about it. Because God has got somebody better for you. Because all God works. That's not what this verse is saying. Okay? And it's, it's the way that we are so quick to jump to the conclusion that if it's good, it's got to be something that we're going to like. It's got to be something that, that the world classifies as good. It's got to be more money, or it's got to be more power, or it's got to be more prestige, or it's got to be you know, something like that. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that you take the situations that you face in life, whatever they are, and God can use those situations... For your good. That's a little different phrase there. He can use it for your good. Now that good that he uses it for may not be what you want. It may not be what you like. But it will be what is best for you. As determined by the creator of the universe. 
who also created you, by the way, and who also knows you better than you know yourself. Go back and read Psalm 139. <laughs> Man, did that just totally leave me. 139? Yes, the Lord, you search me. You know me. You know my inward parts. You know my inward ways. You knew me when I was formed in my mother's womb. Right. Yeah, Psalm 139. He will take the things of our lives that happen to us, the things that we're going through, the things that we are dealing with, and he will use those for our good. Now, the guy who lost his job, he may not give him a better job. He may give him a worse job. And the whole reason that he lost that job to begin with is because God needed to teach him to get off this material bandwagon that he was on. He was working to earn, to gather, to grow, to, to get more things. And it was becoming his God. Maybe that's why God had him lose his job. And he's going to put him in a job where he makes less money so that he cannot be tempted by materialism. The girl who lost her fiancé, maybe he don't want her to get married. Maybe he has a calling for her to where she can best serve him and glorify him and reach her fullest potential in a life of singleness. You don't know, okay? But the verse does promise us that God will work it out, work it to, work it for our good. Now remember, folks, the ultimate good for us is God's glory, which oftentimes, I shouldn't say that, which sometimes is not what we want. <laughs> you know? Exactly. God is not working to make us happy. Chuck Colson would be an excellent example. Look what happened to him. He'd be arrested, being convicted of, of federal crimes mm -hmm. and sentenced. But yet out of that, finding Christ and out of that, being used for a tremendous prison ministry. So God took what happened to him and made it serve God's purposes, which guys, God's purpose for our lives is the best thing for us. Remember the puppy. <laughs> Evan? Patrick? <laughs> Jeff? Yeah, well, yeah, you remember the puppy. Well, yeah, I have to tell you the puppy. Remember, you know, but, this, but this, is, this is one of those this is one of those things, one of those truths of God which Satan can take and just twist slightly and send us down the wrong path. We read that verse and we say, fantastic. You know, okay, this is not so good. That's okay. God's got something better for me. This, this is good. I, I lost this. It's going to be better. I'm going to be, I'm going to be more wealthy. I'm, that's not what this verse is saying. But that's what Satan's going to try to get us to think. So that when that doesn't happen, then what do we do? Then we start doubting the truth of this verse. Because we misinterpreted the truth to begin with. Okay? That's why, gang, that's why studying Scripture is important. It's not only knowing the words, but it's knowing what it says. That's what's important. Okay? For God causes all things to work together. Work together with, work together with, whatever. But the bottom line, the bottom line, that it says that God will 
use everything that happens to result in our good. That may not be what we won't desire, but it will be ultimately what will be our good. It will be what is best for us as determined by the creator of the universe, as I said. One of the things this verse assures me is that no matter what happens in my life, God is ultimately in control. And he can take it and he can use it to make me fulfill his purpose. And you know what one of God's purposes in our lives is? He wants us to become Christ. He wants us to become little Jesuses. You know? He wants us to, to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. We're going to get into that in the next verse. To become conformed to the image of His Son. That's what God wants us. That's one of His purposes for us. And He can do that by taking the things and situations and difficulties and, and yes, even the sufferings of our lives which we have inherited because we're followers of Christ, He can take those and use them to mold and shape us into the likeness of His Son, which will be for our good. Doesn't promise He's going to make us wealthier. Doesn't promise He's going to make us more prosperous. It just promises that He's going to make us better. And that, Paul says, is how he can hoopomone, how he can persevere when times get tough. Because of the hope that he has in glory. Because of the Holy Spirit in his life, which is interceding for him before God. And because God will fulfill his purposes in his life, even in the midst of suffering. He will use it for Paul's betterment. That's how you persevere. Father God, Thank you, Lord. I needed to hear this tonight. I really did. (laughs) I really don't think these guys realize how many times you teach me through what I try to teach. Father, life is tough. Life isn't fair. It is hard. It can be depressing. It can be hurtful. And at times it can seem hopeless. But oh God, help us to remember that even in those times, you are still God. And you still have a purpose for our lives. And you are greater than any of these things. And you can use them for our good if we will simply place our hope and our trust in you. Thank you, Father, for the assurance of your love. Help us to live in your power for your glory. Well, this is my prayer in and through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, my Savior and my Lord and my very bestest friend. Amen and amen. This is David Keel and I want to thank you for being with us tonight. 
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, I would appreciate an email. My address is davidlkeel at gmail.com. I hope you can be with us next week as we begin the very difficult conversation and discussion about predestination and Calvinism and Arminianism as we start with the 29th verse of the 8th chapter. So until then, I pray that we will be reminded of God's faithfulness and the fact that He can take all things and work them out for our good. God bless.